Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Coquito, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. Well, I'm excited to say for the first of what's going to be many times, if you have your copy of God's Word, why don't you go ahead and open it up to the Gospel of John. Our plan over the next many months, it might even be almost two years, is to walk through the Gospel of John. We'll be starting this morning with the first verse of the first chapter. You know, one of the many first world problems that we face and one of the most frustrating things we deal with in our first world problem situations is what I like to call season two. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever streamed a show and you watched season one in about six hours and then you wait for 16 months until season two drops and as you go to watch the second season, you realize, I have no idea who the characters are. I don't remember anything that happened. I don't know anything about this show other than I remember the title and I think I liked it. Thankfully... The people in charge of Netflix came out with what I like to call the two-and-a-half-minute recap. Don't you appreciate the fact that they tell you all the characters, all the important plot lines, everything you need to know? Here's what you need to know. It wasn't Hulu and it wasn't Amazon Prime that first invented the idea of a prologue. It wasn't even Shakespeare who told us at the beginning everything that would happen in Romeo and Juliet. No, this concept goes way back to early writers. Greek dramatists would tell us what would happen in their plays, and the Apostle John picked up that technique, and he uses it to write his gospel. Before he gets into the narrative biography of Jesus that will kick off in verse 19, John spends the first 18 verses telling us who the main characters are and what some of the main plot lines are going to be. Uh, So much detail is put into these verses that it's going to take us two weeks just to cover the prologue. This week, we're going to cover the first eight verses, and we're going to focus on who the main characters are, that, of course, Jesus and John, and then next week, we'll focus on the plot preview. Well, since we're going to spend most of our time focusing in on the main character, I'm just going to tell you up front what John wanted to have be a lingering tension in his prologue. If you were to read the prologue straight through, you would see the main character described as the word and then described as light and then described as life. And you would see all these descriptions about this character, but you wouldn't actually get a name for the character until verse 17. But I'm just going to tell you up front that the main character, according to verse 17, is Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the one who is called the Word. And that's why we're going to title this morning's message, What's the Word? What do we need to know about this main character as we embark on a study of John's gospel? Well, let's dive right in. The first two verses answering the question, who is the Word? Here's what John writes, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Uh, Verse 1 is one of the most theologically dense verses in all of Scripture. 
Uh, John packs three important theological truths into the three clauses or three sections of this first verse. Let's break them down section by section. Who is the Word? Well, the first thing John tells us about the Word is that he is preexistent. And notice the first three words in the beginning. Now, John is intentionally echoing the first three words of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, in the beginning, the word. You would expect that if he was purposefully echoing Genesis, he would also echo God. In the beginning, God, but not any longer. In the beginning, the word. And this word character we pick up on from just those first few words must have the same pre-existent quality as God because God existed before time and human history began and the Word existed before time and human history began. Genesis was the story of creation. John, kicking off the New Covenant or the New Testament, is the story of new creation. The God who created is going to create again. The God who began history is going to renew history in a world that is lost and broken. Uh, this next we need to know, not only is the word preexistent, uh, the word was God. We're taking the final clause of the verse next. Now there's two words in the Greek language for was. There's the word me, which always means was, and there's the word genomai, which often means was, but can also mean became. So, me was, always existed, or genomai is, but could come into being. Now, why is that important? Because throughout the Bible, those words are used interchangeably, but John is very purposefully putting those words together in his prologue to make a contrast and in verse 1, he does not use the verb genomai. He uses the word me because he wants to emphasize that this God who is and was and always will be the word had no beginning. Now, there was some controversy about that in the early church. I don't know if you've studied your early church history, but there was a dude in the early 4th century and his name was Arius, and he was a heretic and a punk. In fact, every time we talk about Arius, alarm bells should go off in your head, and you should be like, boo. In fact, let's try that. So there was this guy in the early 4th century, and his name was Arius. Good job. And he went around teaching people this phrase. There was a time when the sun was not. His idea was that there was a created son who did not always exist with God, but he was the best of the creations that God made. And there's a problem with that. If the son, the word, Jesus Christ, was a created being, if he lived a perfect life, he could die as a substitute for one other created being. Only an uncreated person of infinite value because he has infinite worth due to his infinite existence could cover for everyone their guilt of sin because of his death. 
So Arius was teaching there was a time when the sun was not. And you know who really got annoyed with Arius for teaching this when they had a big church meeting to decide some of the details about Jesus? There was a guy that we talk about in December, St. Nicholas. And St. Nicholas was not having Arius' teaching. And so history records for us that as they were debating who Jesus was, eventually jolly old St. Nicholas had had enough and wasn't very jolly anymore. And he went up to Arius and just gave it to him right in the face. While I don't typically advocate violence over theological issues, I do love the idea of St. Nicholas punching somebody in the face. Now here's the thing. I doubt that many of you are struggling with early 4th century issues. I doubt many of you are thinking, oh, I heard this week that there was a time when the sun was not. But why does that matter? Well, history has a way of repeating itself. And if you've ever come across a Jehovah's Witness, they tend to believe a version of warmed over sloppy seconds Arianism. And their translation of the scripture, their New World translation in John chapter 1 verse 1 actually says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God as in a lowercase g, created being who was better than us, but kind of like Greek mythology, not all the way up there. And so I just want to let you know that we can have confidence in our translation of God's word. So in the Greek, when there is a time when we have what's called an anarthrous construction, you're like, yo, that's really deep grammatically. Okay, here's the deal, here's the deal. Subject, linking verb, predicate nominative. He is that. When you have that construction in Greek and there's no the before the predicate nominative, he is the that, not what we have in Greek. He is that. 87% of the time, it's best to translate that and leave the the or the uh out. It's called a qualitative use. Writing about the Gospel of John in his commentary, Mickey Klink defines this as the qualitative use, meaning that the word contains all the attributes and qualities that God contains, and yet he remains distinct. And that leads us right into our third point. He was with God. Uh, Verse 2 repeats the second part of verse 1. But here's the question that would pop up into our mind. How can the word be God and yet be with God? How can I be something and be with something without being schizophrenic? Uh, Don't miss this. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, We worship a three-in-one triune God, and this is one of the main verses that helps us understand this. More than any other New Testament author, John uses the term Father to refer to the first person of the Trinity. He uses Jesus, or the Son, or the Word, to refer to the second person of the Trinity, He'll introduce the third person of the Holy Spirit, or the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, later in his gospel. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal in glory, co-equal in majesty, co-eternal in being. 
and co-united with the same divine will. They all want to accomplish the same thing. They've been around for the same amount of time, and they deserve the same praise and the same glory. But they exist as three unique persons. One essence, one God, revealed in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the Word can both be God and be with the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. That's John's one-verse theology lesson. It leads us to our second question. Why is Jesus called the Word? It seems a rather random description. John will use this description of Jesus as the Word through verse 14, and then he'll drop it, and it will never appear throughout the rest of the gospel. And so why does John call Jesus the Word? Well, you have to understand one of John's writing techniques. John loves to take a verb that appears rather ambiguous. It could have two meanings, like does it mean this or does it mean that? And the context could support either. The language could support either. So is it this or is it that? And John's answer is yes. John loves to use words that have a double meaning. And John's using the word, word, here with a double meaning because he wants to use the word word to call out both Gentile Greek people and Jewish people. And so this concept of the word can be understood in a way that it speaks to both groups. Now, in order to understand that, you have to understand the background of the book of John. So the book of John was written by John, the apostle of Jesus, one of the first 12 disciples, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. And it was written near the end of the first century for people who are living in Ephesus. And the idea was that John was writing to confirm the message that these people had heard. But living in a cultural city like Ephesus that was widely known in the Roman Empire and prominent in the Roman Empire, there would be people, both Gentile Greeks and Jewish people, living in Ephesus who would challenge the believers, what you believe is not legit. And so John is writing to those who would challenge the early church, and he's saying, God's got a challenge for you, and the challenge is the word. So let's talk about how that works for both groups, okay? So to Gentile Greeks, the word word in Greek is logos. In the beginning was the logos. Now, it's interesting that Greeks in their philosophy also use the term logos as an important concept. You see how they get that, right? Logos, logic, you see where that comes from? So in Stoic philosophy, the logos was the preexistent foundational principle on which the world depended. So you need to know this logical truth in order to understand how life works. And so John says to these Greeks, the logos is not a principle. The logos is a person. You don't need to know these truths. You need to know the embodiment of truth. You don't need to know these facts. You need to know this person in whom all reality 
came into existence and who can define reality for you. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The secret to an abundant life is not knowing the right things. Interestingly, we live in a world that says what you need to do is figure things out and know the right things. We live in a world that says everything depends on understanding the right principles. Sometimes they would say, the principle you need to understand is love. Everything depends on love. Of course, our culture defines love in a rather strange way. Our culture defines love as you accept someone for everything they say they are without any challenge of whether what they say coheres with reality. We just blindly affirm everything about someone else. And while I'm all about the fact that we should genuinely care and have affection for people, the principle of love cannot be the thing that upholds reality. Others would say power is the king. You need to figure out how to get as much authority as much decision-making prowess over others as you can. If you can control the world, you'll feel better about the world. Other people would say popularity is the key. What you need to do is get known on TikTok. Put yourself out there on the gram. Because if people know who you are, then you'll have value. So if you figure out how to be popular, you'll figure out the key to life. Others would say happiness is the key. Whatever makes you feel good about yourself, you need to do that and do it over and over so that you keep feeling the same happy, warm and fuzzy feelings. Of course, there's another group that would say science is the key. Uh, science is kind of an interesting phenomenon, right? Like we observe natural reality and there's kind of this assumption that whatever you can explain that you have control over and so people study the microscopic levels of humanity down to the cellular level. They explore the broad galaxies out in outer space. And the more they can define what is out there or the components of what is around us, they feel like they have control over life. Well, I think we need the same word that John was giving to the Greeks by calling out their logos. You need not a principle. You need to encounter a person. The word is the word. The word, the communication from God is the embodied word in Jesus Christ. But what does that have to do with Jewish people? Well, Jesus is also showing how the word was the word from God that the Jewish people had been waiting for for centuries. Around the time of Jesus, there were three words or concepts that were all kind of being distilled together into one thing. And those three words or concepts were wisdom, word, and Torah. Uh, Torah was the written word of the Old Testament. It was their revelation or their word from God. And so throughout the Old Testament, there was the word word, there was the word wisdom, and they were starting to think that the word and the wisdom, all of that 
was God's communication, and God's communication was the Torah or the revealed Old Testament. So let's kind of see how they got there. Check out Psalm 33, verse 6. Uh, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So just as in the beginning was the word, we see that the word was around when the heavens were made. So in Proverbs chapter 8, God is talking about wisdom, uh, the Greek word Sophia, and wisdom was also around when the world was made. Check out Proverbs 8, verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, I'll jump ahead to verse 30. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of humanity. So the word was there with God. Wisdom was there with God. But then Jewish people started to suggest that the word and the wisdom was Torah. In fact, according to Craig Keener, around the time of Jesus Christ, Jewish leaders and scholars said that the Torah and the word were the embodiment of how God would communicate with his people. So when Jesus showed up on the scene, to be a good Jewish person meant to honor and revere and love the Torah. Listen to what Keener writes. The centrality of Torah for early Judaism can't be overstated. Jewish people scrupulously taught Torah to their children and were thus regarded among pagans as a particularly educated people. Some Jewish interpretation documents about their um, Old Testament scriptures called the Tanaim emphasized lifelong study of Torah. A Torah scroll could be said to be beyond price. Some texts attributed the exile to neglect of Torah or declare it better to have never been born than to be able to recite words of Torah or declare one who doesn't study Torah worthy of death or declare that uh, Torah study is a greater role than being a priest or a king. The world couldn't continue without Torah. Whereas God, the Holy One, might be lenient in judging idolatry, sexual immorality, murder, or even apostasy, he would not be lenient in neglect of Torah. In later Jewish texts, the Torah is considered a person betrothed to Israel, God's daughter to his son. In another kind of parable, Torah is God's bride and queen. When God says in Genesis 1, let us make humanity, the us was interpreted as God being with his law, his Torah. So the Jewish people were all about the word from God that was revealed in the Old Testament. And they were expecting a new word. There was a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, we read this prophecy about what the people expected the Lord to do. And here's what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How is God going to bring about the reclamation of the nations? How is God going to fix what is broken in the world and bring about right worship? He's going to send out his law. 
and people are going to hear this new word from the Lord that will go out from Jerusalem and they're going to respond in faith. And you see what John is doing in his gospel. He's saying the word you've been waiting for, the Torah you've been studying and devoting your life to, that you've been looking for to come again in a more powerful way, the Torah of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, the word of the Lord is the word the person who showed up on the scene and from the promised land, his message is gonna go out across the entire world. The word is the word, Jesus Christ. And notice what he will do. He will give us a new law. Not the old law of Torah, do this and do this and do this to be in right relationship with God, but a new law. By grace, put your faith in the word, and you can be connected with the Lord. Another double meaning in verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What is the light being described in verse four? The word was present at creation when God turned the light on for the first time with the word of his mouth, but the light is also the illumination of our hearts that turns on the light of new birth, the light of salvation that helps us come to faith. See, we've been living in a dark world. Isaiah predicted it in Isaiah 9 and verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. Without the light being turned on, we would not understand where we are, we would not understand who we are, and we would not understand where we're going. But Jesus came to turn the light on for us. So in a world that has been overcome by darkness, we can understand what truth is. We need God to show us what truth is because we are not smart enough, we are not wise enough, we are not clever enough to find truth on our own. Truth must be revealed and the light comes to reveal truth to us. Have you ever had in your life a moment where it's like someone turned the light on for you and you were like, I thought this, but then they showed me that and I realized what reality actually was. So that happened for me with pickleball. I'm not gonna lie. It was about a year and a half ago, my good friend Chad asked me if I wanted to play pickleball. I'd never heard of the thing and I was thinking, this sounds horrible. Who wants to take a paddle and knock a dill pickle back and forth. I had no idea what it was. And he said to me, he said, oh, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like a cross between tennis and ping pong, which sounded ridiculous. But then as I started playing and learning about the strategy and some of the skill required, once I started competing with some friends, I realized that what I thought sounded completely boring was actually quite fun. What I thought sounded like it was going to be a waste of two hours was actually something that I was gonna want to learn how to do better and better and better. But I needed someone to show me that this foolishly named activity was actually really cool. Now, 
Let's up the stakes like a million times, and that's what Jesus does for us. We think that Jesus, the word, sounds irrelevant. We think that he sounds unimportant. We think that he sounds like just another historical figure, but Jesus comes to turn the light on for us to show us that there is something that we need to find in him that will unlock for us the understanding of what reality actually is. And when we see Jesus rightly, when we see Jesus anew and afresh, everything begins to make sense. The light shines in the darkness. But there's a note of conflict here in the text, isn't there? The darkness has not overcome it. Yet another word with a double meaning, the word overcome. The word overcome can mean to grasp with the mind, to understand something. The darkness, evil, has not understood who the light is. You know, it's interesting. John isn't setting up light and darkness in kind of a Star Wars yin-yang kind of thing. You know, where light and darkness need to exist in a balance for the world to continue. John is setting up light and darkness in a cosmic conflict. There's a war going on, and the darkness is going to attack and try and snuff out the light because the darkness, which is evil, does not like the light, which is good and pure. And so the second possible meaning of overcome, I think both are true, the darkness, which is evil, stuck in its own lack of understanding, cannot understand who the light is or why the word matters, but the word can also mean to grasp with the hand, to overpower, to subdue. And that is what is going to happen as Jesus comes into maturity. The darkness is going to attack and try to snuff out the light. And Satan's tool to try and overcome the light is the cross. But hear this, what Satan crucifies, God glorifies. What Satan buries, God raises up. What Satan kills, God makes alive. What Satan leaves to be done with in the old creation, God restores to bring about new creation. And Jesus, the firstborn out of the dead, the first resurrected one, shows us that the light wins in the end because the darkness does not get the final word. Resurrection, light, which is life, the one who gave life in the beginning of human history will give new life into our souls through the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus is what can resurrect us. And that is the story of God's, uh, John's gospel. God offers new life, new light, to his people. But there's one more question, three more verses. The question is, why is there a witness? Here's what it says in chapter one, verses six, seven, and eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we're introduced to a second character, a character named John. Now, interestingly, in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tend to tell us which John we're talking about. 
Are we talking about John the Apostle or are we talking about John the Baptist? So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see a lot of John the Baptist, John the Baptist, John the Baptist. Here we just see John. The reason for that is the John who wrote the gospel never defines himself by name. So the only John that appears in the gospel is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist shows up, and why does he show up? He shows up to be a witness. And why does he show up to be a witness? Because the entire book of John is meant to be read as a court case. Jesus is being presented, and he's on trial in your heart. Will you believe and receive, or will you reject and walk away? The whole gospel of John is bookended with two witnesses. There was a man sent from God whose name was John who came as a witness in chapter one, but listen to what John writes about himself, the author of the book, in chapter 21 and verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There's a witness to Jesus because each of us has to answer the question, do you believe, will you receive? John's gospel wasn't written so that we'd have historical information. It was written to drive us to a decision point. That's why John says in chapter 20, there are a lot of other things that Jesus did as well. He says, if we wrote down every one of them, I suppose not even the whole world would have room for the books that would be written. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The God who turned on the light of history, the God who spoke life into history, is now turning on the light of a new history, a new era, new creation. And he's asking, will you be part of it? Will you by faith, receive it. We live in a world that asks, will God tell us who he is? Will God give us a word to tell us what we need to know and what we need to do? I mean, I was really reminded of that about a week ago. Have you been following the DeMar Hamlin story? Player for the Buffalo Bills who lay dead on the field for nine minutes until he was able to be revived. And what an incredible story that he's been... uh, dismissed from the hospital already. And after being discharged, he's been able to go and visit his team. And God did something incredible. But a few days after that hit, when he was still in Cincinnati, still in critical condition, there was a sports show on television. It was hosted by a guy named Nick Wright. And Nick's been a pretty vocal atheist. But in the middle of his show, after watching the response of the Christian community to what happened on the football field, after watching Christians pray for this guy and seeing signs that he was probably going to make it, Nick Wright said on air on his television show, I wish I had the faith that Christians have so that I could make sense of what I'm seeing. Because if there's nothing greater out there, none of this makes any sense. And how many people go throughout life saying, God, will you give me something to help life make sense? God, will you show me something so that I can understand who I am, where I'm at, and where this whole thing is going? And God simply says, I don't need to give you another word because I sent the word. And the word has communicated to you everything you need to know. The writer of Hebrews says in the past, 
in many times, in various ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We have a word who came to show us who God is and who came to take our sin as his own. To identify with our struggles and our failures on the tree that he might kill them there and to be raised up to resurrection life that by believing in him, new creation sons and daughters could be connected with God and have a new start. We all have to answer that question. Will you receive and believe the word? Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.